Chapter 1 Helio what? Helio what? Dr. Collins asked. Helioanthropologist, George Porter answered. No such thing. Until now, George pressed. I've been thinking about it for a while, and it totally makes sense. To you, maybe, Dr. Collins allowed with a snort of disapproval. I've already talked to the Chancellor, Dr. Collins, and he said that if you signed off on it, you wouldn't lose any funding. This got the professor's attention. George saw his expression lighten and pounced. You've always said that anthropologists need to find creative new ways to apply the lessons from the past. You also insist that we bring new ideas and new perspectives to ancient problems, right? Go on, Dr. Collins said. So this is a new perspective on an ancient problem. That's a bit of a stretch, George, don't you think? Not at all, sir. Not at all. So what problem does this solve? Uh, it solves the problem of having anthropology continue to be viewed as a purely academic anachronism. George knew that this would anger his professor and mentor, but he figured he had nothing to lose. An academic anachronism, Dr. Pollan sputtered, turning bright red. You get the hell out of my office. While George knew that his previous comment would anger Dr. Collins, he didn't anticipate such a vehement response. I will not. Not until you engage me. Engage you? You little snot. I'll engage my foot up your ass if you don't leave right now. George stood his ground and took a deep breath. At the beginning of the semester, you complained to me about how the new freshman class was bored and indifferent. We sat right here in your office and polished off a bottle of brandy. Cognac, Dr. Collins corrected with only slightly less vehemence. We finished a bottle of cognac. A very good cognac, if I'm being honest. And you were wondering what you could do to get more interest and, pardon the use of the word, engagement. I can't say this would do it overnight, but it's something that might be seen as rash, unusual, rebellious even. Rebellious, huh? Dr. Collins was trying to hide his smile as the wheels in his brain turned. Rebellious, George said. He looked at Dr. Collins and dared not speak another word. Even when Dr. Collins looked back at him, his eyes pleading for something more, George remained silent. It was only 45 seconds, but to George it could have been 20 minutes. He could hear the ticking of Dr. Collins' prized pocket watch, which was audible, even tucked away safely in the pocket of his ever-present vest. He was about to begin measuring the time by counting the seconds on the watch when Dr. Collins spoke. You'll have to give your dissertation not only to me, but also to those stargazing dolts from the fourth floor, Dr. Collins said carefully, deliberately insulting the astronomy department. This little dig was not as innocent as it might seem to an outsider. Dr. Collins was fiercely protective of George, who he always considered to be the only true anthropologist to come through his class in 30 years. He resented that George would split his time with stargazers instead of focusing solely on his own life's work. George allowed himself to smile. He was almost home. I know, sir. 
and they're not any more pleased at sharing me than you are. This jolted Dr. Collins from his train of thought and put him back on the defensive. He hated George when he played these little mind games with him. I beg your pardon? George softened. He knew he was entering delicate territory. Sir, you've been more than a professor to me, and you know that. Dr. Collins nodded slightly. So it should be no surprise that over the years I've picked up on your disapproval of my splitting time between anthropology and solar astronomy. I, I knew that deep down it hurt, and I'm sorry. Dr. Collins was speechless at this confession. But in my mind, I can't separate the two. George paused, waiting for Dr. Collins to look at him. I know, Dr. Collins finally relented. I know. That's why it's so important to me that you not only allow me to do this, but that you get behind it and support me. Ha! Like that's going to happen, Dr. Collins laughed. But as soon as the words came out, he realized that he vocalized what should have only been a thought. George was devastated. He looked at his professor, fighting back tears. He opened his mouth to say something, but thought better of it, and simply stood up and walked to the door. I'm sorry, George. Come back. Let's talk this out. Come on, George. But it was too late. George was gone. God damn it, Dr. Collins said, angry at his lapse in judgment and decorum. George had been pissed off at his professors before, but as he walked slowly down the hall from Dr. Collins' office, he realized that he'd never been hurt like that before. He always knew that his gambit would be a battle, but he had no idea that it could take a turn like this. Deep down, he knew that Dr. Collins didn't really mean what he said, but then again, he knew that there had to be some truth in it. This was normally the kind of truth that people kept to themselves, or laughed about privately with their close friends. Dr. Collins, who was the most careful and thoughtful person George could ever recall meeting, was the absolute picture of decorum in class. What he said, therefore, could not possibly have been inadvertent. This realization stopped George in his tracks. If it was deliberate, what was his endgame? This was the question that haunted George for the next three weeks. Try as he might, he couldn't figure out what Dr. Collins was up to. While Professor Lee Hong in the astronomy department was disappointed that George had turned down a fellowship that would have allowed him to continue his groundbreaking work on solar flares, he was supportive of Joel's ambitious plan to create a new specialty. He even liked the name George had created, Helioanthropology. But Dr. Collins remained silent about his thoughts, and more importantly, about his true feelings. While this was a continuing distraction, George did not allow himself to get sidetracked. His theories were well-researched and were certainly going to be groundbreaking. Of course, groundbreaking discoveries in anthropology were a rare thing, since anthropology, the study of mankind, is based on historical facts and events. Discoveries themselves are heralded by archaeologists as they literally unearth buried things. It's up to anthropologists to interpret those artifacts and put it all into historical, social, and cultural perspectives. George's working theories diverge from the mainstream and accepted teachings based on painstaking research on solar flares. 
Several years prior, as an undergraduate student, he stumbled upon an ancient text found in a recently uncovered Mayan ruin. The text was largely ignored as being historically insignificant, largely due to the treasure trove of other writings from high priests and royalty found at the site. And while the other writings referenced a visible anomaly seen during what we now know was a solar eclipse, not much was made of it, since that particular eclipse was otherwise well documented. George was initially puzzled by a repeated reference the author made to the beginning of something. After exhaustive research and consultations with linguistics experts, George finally interpreted the passage to mean the beginning of the end. Historically speaking, the end of the Mayan era had already been determined to occur between the 8th and 9th centuries AD. And while no universally accepted theory exists to explain the total collapse of the civilization, the hypotheses holding the most relevance were that an extended drought, lasting perhaps 200 years, was the root cause. But the text that George found so interesting had been dated to the later half of the 8th century. This would have corresponded to the middle of the drought, and should have been accompanied by references to the cultural and political upheavals that such an ecological disaster would have caused. These references were conspicuously absent from the text. While puzzling over the text and the mentions of the beginning of the end, George went to see an exhibition about the Roman gladiators with his girlfriend, Michelle. While Michelle, a math major, totally loved the art and, and mythical stories, George couldn't set aside his encyclopedic knowledge of Roman culture and history enough to be entertained. The exhibit was sorely lacking in historical accuracy. It was really just a superficial representation of the myths and outright falsehoods about that time in human history. It pissed him off. On their long, leisurely stroll back to the campus, Michelle was waxing poetic about the artifacts that she liked, and George was nodding and agreeing while trying to tune her out. His mind was somewhere else when he heard the question that would change his life. Whatever happened to the Romans anyway? she asked innocently. George stopped dead in his tracks. He was vaguely aware of her voice as she continued talking, and he was looking in her general direction but he was focused on the stars that were just beyond her blonde hair. He loved it when the Orion constellation was low on the horizon. His mind was racing and repeated the question, whatever happened to the Romans? Then suddenly, without warning, he turned, kissed Michelle goodbye, and sprinted back to campus, sequestering himself in the library for three straight days. While he was there, he cross-referenced the fall or significant decline of ancient civilizations with documented and suspected solar flare events. His results were astounding. In every case he studied, he found a solar flare event that preceded the collapse or fall of each advanced civilization. Over the next four years, he confirmed a pattern that went far beyond the accepted theory of an 11-year solar cycle. In fact, Three years earlier, as a new graduate student, he found patterns, which he confirmed thanks to an algorithm Michelle developed for him, that corresponded to almost every cultural upheaval in recorded history. He made his most chilling discovery when he applied his theories to the Mayan calendar. 
The end of the Mayan calendar, December 21, 2012, corresponded to a solar event that his mathematical models predicted would be orders of magnitude larger than the largest recorded solar flare in history. And this discovery brought him full circle back to the largely ignored Mayan text. While history acknowledged the solar eclipse that occurred on or near the middle of the 8th century, there was, according to his models, a massive solar flare that was occurring at the same time. In the years following this discovery, he spent his time shuffling between advanced study of the solar cycles and historical studies of major societies and cultures. He was desperately trying to discredit his own startling conclusions. He fastidially documented everything, become a prodigious writer, painstaking in his research and citations. By the time he came up with the idea of combining solar astronomy and anthropology, his multidisciplinary doctoral dissertation was already complete. In order for his theories to gain traction, he needed to have the backing of both astronomers and anthropologists. By the time he had his discussion with Dr. Collins, he had spent much of the previous six months planning and strategizing his moves to get the necessary approvals. It was the summer of 2003 when it all came together in a small lecture hall in the campus of UC Berkeley. He had married Michelle three years prior, shortly after she told him that she was pregnant with his son Jake. When George defended his doctoral thesis in front of a semi-hostile and very suspicious audience of, of astronomers and anthropologists, Jake was a precocious two-year-old, and their daughter, Isabel, was kicking up a storm in her mother's belly. But even after the round of withering questions and suspicious competing theories, George stood fast, refusing to give even an inch. His scientific research was beyond reproach on the astronomy side, and his extensive reference explained even the most esoterical historical question that arose from the anthropology contingent. The genius of his dissertation was revealed when he had asked for permission to break his presentation into two parts. The scientific and historical portions were only part one. The second part was his conclusion, which offered a chilling prediction of the beginning of the end of our civilization. When he had successfully defended the last of the questions from Dr. Collins, he smiled and took a drink of water. It was not a quick sip. It was a long, slow, and deliberate drink after which he picked up a napkin and carefully dabbed the sides of his mouth. He prolonged the moment even more by refolding the blue cloth napkin and gently putting it back on the lectern. The room was eerily silent as he leaned over to the projector. The assembled professors were anticipating another slideshow, and he saw their puzzled expressions when he turned the projector off entirely. He looked over the faces in the room, smiled at his very pregnant wife, and took a breath before delivering an address that was talked about for years after. Ladies and gentlemen, this brings me to the conclusion. George paused for effect. Based on my research and unequivocal evidence of solar cycles, there will be a supermassive solar flare event in the latter half of the next decade that will mark the beginning of the end of our civilization as we know it. He paused again, letting the snickers from some of the professors subside. 
He saw Dr. Collins roll his eyes derisively. This is exactly the response he expected. Through your snickers and derisive eye-rolling, he looked directly at Dr. Collins, I wonder if you noticed that I did not say that the end would be caused by the supermassive solar flare. Again, he paused for effect. I said that it would be marked by the solar flare event. And if you recall, throughout the historical part of my presentation, I offered no support for any proposition that indicated that the solar flares had caused the decline or fall of any of the civilizations referenced. I respectfully submit the theory that the physical, scientific, and or ecological impact of the large flares throughout history were insignificant compared to the social and cultural upheavals that ensued. Also, I urge you not to lose sight of how the solar cycles interacted and coincided with the rise of these civilizations. He turned the projector back on and displayed a chart of his mathematical model of solar cycles. You recall this slide and how I previously highlighted the solar flare events and how they corresponded to the end of civilizations. Let me show you another set of overlays. He overlaid his solar models with slides representing the civilizations as they rose and flourished. He thought he heard Dr. Collins gasp. As you can see, there's a consistent correlation between the various cycles of each of the reference civilizations in my models of solar cycles. In each case, the solar flare events mark the end of a solar cycle. As the overlays of mankind's greatest civilization cycled over his solar models, expressions changed from cynical to interested to worried. George had them exactly where he wanted them for his grand finale. Without saying a word, he displayed the last slide of a society without a name. And, as you can see here, this society, he was interrupted by Dr. Collins. What civilization is this? George raised a finger as he cycled another solar model through the overlay. This society benefited for almost 400 years from what I've called the beneficial years that we've seen at the end of all of the previous solar cycles in various phases. According to my models, this solar cycle is scheduled to end with a supermassive solar flare less than 15 years from the date of this slide. What civilization is this? Dr. Collins again asked. What are the dates? George smiled and clicked his button, allowing the name of the civilization and dates to appear on the slide. Current Civilization, 1712 to 2018. This slide is us, as of today. The room broke out in gasps and loud discussions between the professors. Michelle smiled briefly before looking at the dates on the slide and becoming worried. A full-blown argument broke out between Dr. Collins and another anthropologist. George couldn't hear what they were saying, but Dr. Collins was obviously the instigator. George clicked off the projector and stood there, marveling at the chaos for a moment before trying to, to restore order. Excuse me, gentlemen, gentlemen, he slapped his hand down on the lectern. Gentlemen, may I please continue? Slowly, the room settled down. Thank you. Let me explain how this is likely to happen. First, let's examine where we are as a civilization, George began. 
and the technological effects of a supermassive solar flare. For the next hour, George explained in general terms how the solar flare would impact technology, beginning with the destruction of virtually all of our extraterrestrial satellites. No satellites means no GPS, very limited television, severely degraded international communication. The disruptions in Earth's magnetic fields and atmospheric distortions would render virtually all radio transmissions unusable for weeks, if not months. And while we think of our cell phones as something other than radios, they do, in fact, operate on the same principles as radios and would be useless when the flare hit the Earth, and potentially for weeks or months afterwards if the flare was anywhere near as massive as George's models predicted. George went on to describe the variety and intensity of the different forms of radiation that such a flare would emit. The most chilling outcomes revolved around the electromagnetic radiation that matched the wavelengths of radiation emitted by nuclear weapons. He brought this point home when he, when he pointed out that our sun is, in fact, the result of a massive ongoing nuclear reaction. These particular wavelengths of radiation would permanently destroy virtually all solid-state electronics. Basically, anything with transistors and what we now take for granted as integrated circuits would be fried. Planes, trains, and automobiles manufactured after the early 70s would all be dead. Our electric power grids, run and managed by computers, would all go down indefinitely. There are no backup systems that do not contain solid-state electronics. But the devastation of our power grids and virtually all transportation would be an absolute worst-case scenario. George paused to let this sink in. The assembled professors were no longer laughing. So now let's talk about how this will mark the beginning of the end of our civilization as we know it, he began. I think that we are tenuously close to a major cultural and social upheaval as it is. Over the past several years, there's been a lot of discussion and discourse over the widening socioeconomic gap, and accusations have been flying over class warfare that is pitting the rich against the middle class and the poor. While these discussions are nothing new, the intensity of these feelings is already reaching dangerous proportions. We have more heavily armed groups that call themselves militias than in any time in our history. Our government has been in political deadlock for the past 15 years, and it doesn't look like it's going to get any better anytime soon. Approval ratings for Congress and the president have been at their lowest level of history, and if you can believe it, they seem to be even going lower. So what happens when key components of our infrastructure fail? George looked at all the professors and saw that their smirks had been replaced by genuine concern. What happens when people in big cities can't go to the grocery store and buy food, water, or medicine? Even if the event I'm talking about isn't as severe as the worst-case scenario, currently our grocery stores are restocked every day or two. How long do you think it would take for these stores to completely run out of basic provisions, and what do you think the multitudes in the big cities are going to do? Where are they going to get food? How is the government going to provide for 330 million citizens? This was the place where George intended to stay silent for a very long time. He wanted the professors to fully digest what he'd laid out before them and think about whether or not he was actually looking for an answer. When the professors began to look at one another, 
he knew once more that he had them. After a minute or so, they looked back to him. How long can the police and fire departments last? How will they even be able to communicate effectively enough to know where to go and what to do? No cell phones, no radios, no television, no internet. We might have limited hardline phone service, but how many people in big cities have home phones? And don't computers run most phone systems? These are just the first set of questions that come to mind. In the blink of an eye, America can very easily be reverted back to the late 1800s or early 1900s. The key difference is that we are much less well-equipped to deal with the basic necessities of life than we were back then. We drive or take the bus to the grocery store to eat. We rely on ATMs and the Internet to pay our bills. Massive, technology-dependent super farms are run by multinational conglomerates, and they've replaced all but a few of the small, self-sufficient family farms. How will we survive? George asked. My hypothesis is that we won't survive. Not all of us. Not for very long. And not with anything resembling a centralized government. We'll have to start from scratch, at the community level, and we'll be forced to grow from there. Professor Hong had heard enough. As a scientist, he had little patience for theoretical discussions, especially ones based on wild assumptions and unlikely events. Of course we'll survive! I'm really disappointed, George. What started out as a discussion grounded in science has come completely off the rails with alarmist ravings. Really? Let's talk about it for just a moment. How much food do you have in your pantry right now, Professor Hong? What difference does it make? Please, just go with me for a minute. How long can you survive if you could not go to the store to buy food? Let's say a week. I have some canned food that my wife keeps for when the grandkids visit. Okay. With no deliveries because there's no rail service and no trucking, your supermarket would be completely bare of all, few, of all food in a few days. Let's say seven days for the sake of argument. It's now day eight. You have no food in your house. Where do you get your next meal? All eyes were on Professor Hong. I don't know. I guess I'd eat out. George tried to stifle a laugh. <laughs> Where? No restaurants would be open. How would you eat out? Well, by that time, there would be relief efforts. The government would have to ration food. Right now, we're in Berkeley, California. Population is 800,000. With no trains and no trucking, where would the food come from? How would it even get from the fields to the city? Supermarket distribution centers rely on regular shipments. They serve as hubs, and the local deliveries go out through the spokes, if we use the distribution analogy of a wagon wheel. When the hub runs dry, there's nothing to put into the spokes to get to the stores. The crops would begin to rot in the fields. So we're back to the question. It's day eight. Where are you going to get your next meal? Maybe my neighbor has some extra food. Let's say he does. Why would he feed you when he needs the food for his own survival? Or even more importantly, for his children's survival? How far do you think people will go when their kids are starving? 
all eyes went back to Professor Hong, who was getting uncomfortable. Within 30 days, people will begin starving to death, literally. As it is, we're overly dependent on fast food. We're already bordering on malnutrition just based on our unhealthy diets. That's bad, but it's not the worst part. An entire population starving to death is not the worst part? Dr. Collins asked sarcastically. No, it's not. How we fill the power vacuum left after the disintegration of our governmental systems will be far worse. Desperate people with firearms doing desperate things will be worse. Desperate armed gangs roaming the streets with impunity will become exponentially worse. Who's going to stop them? You, Professor Hong? Dr. Collins? The local sheriff? How? He'll be outgunned from the start. Our military isn't large enough or distributed enough to mount any kind of meaningful defense. It will be anarchy throughout most of the country. We've been through difficult times before, and we've always pulled through. I think you've taken this to an unrealistic extreme. Maybe it's time to start wrapping this up, Dr. Collins suggested. I agree, Dr. Collins, that we have been through difficult times before, George answered. But there has always been a central goal, a central rallying cry, if you will. But what will people rally around when their family, friends, and everyone they know is starving, literally to death, in front of them? How much will they be willing to sacrifice when armed gangs are roaming the streets, threatening their very survival? And the most important question is this. How long will it take to restore order and begin the rebuilding process after such a devastating upheaval? George took one last breath and pressed on. Ladies and gentlemen, my models show that a supermassive solar flare will occur in the latter part of the next decade. The science is solid. That this solar flare event will mark the beginning of the end of our civilization is deeply rooted in history. The only question that remains is, what are we going to do about it? With that, George stepped back from the lectern. His audience was silent for a moment before Dr. Collins looked at the other professors and nodded. Thank you, George. You've certainly given us a lot to think about, and I don't think I'm going too far out on a limb to say that I think your dissertation will be talked about for a very long time, proclaimed Dr. Collins. Dr. Hong stood, still a little bit shaken after being raked through the coals by George's hypotheticals. He began to applaud slowly and quietly. The rest of the professors in attendance joined him. George blushed and then walked over to where Dr. Collins was standing. There were tears in his eyes as he hugged his mentor. When he looked up from Dr. Collins' shoulder, he saw his wife. She, too, was crying and rubbing her oversized belly. Before he pushed away from Dr. Collins, George momentarily flashed on the question of what Dr. Collins had been up to when he laughed at George all those months ago. He still didn't know, but one thing he did know, to a scientific certainty, none of that mattered now. He would be a helioanthropologist, perhaps the first, and, if his theories were correct, he would probably be the last.